Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, sacré bleu, il est fort sans pied, il utilise ses mains, sans pied? Un honte, un disgrace! Oh, what's this? He's thrown it back! This could change the sport! A terrible day for fishing, a great day for the fish! This is Apocalypse Sports Radio, and now your host, Shane Ryan! Hello, everybody. Uh, this is episode number 21 of Apocalypse Sports Radio. I'm Shane. Uh, we got a big week coming up. Joe Poznanski is going to join us Thursday. Uh, Joe of The Athletic, of course, and author and just all-around great writer and podcaster. Um, but today we're back on our narrative jive, and the subject of this podcast is the blood-in-the-water water polo match at the 1956 Olympics in Melbourne, Australia, between Hungary and the Soviet Union. Now, this is coming hot on the heels of last week's podcast about the Richard Riots, so you might be getting the impression that I have a particular fondness for that point where politics and sports and history intersect. And if there's a dash of violence thrown in the mix, so much the better. Well, guilty as charged. I do find it interesting. Although, of course, in the future, these episodes will not all have the same theme. I promise. But today, yes, we are back to the wheelhouse. If I asked you to think of Hungarian sports today here in the year 2020, you would probably either draw a blank or if you're like me, an Olympic fanatic, you would immediately think of water polo. And you'd be right to think that. In the 1928 games in Amsterdam, the Hungarian team won a silver medal and four years later, they won their first gold. From then on, they dominated. They won a medal at 13 straight Olympics starting in 1928. And though they endured a dry spell in the 80s and 90s, they won three more golds from 2000 to 2008. Their nine gold medals to date more than double the nearest competitor, and their 15 overall medals are seven more than the second-place team, Italy. It's the same in the World Championships, where Hungary has won the most golds and the most overall medals. When it comes to water polo, Hungary is the class of the world, and has been for almost a century. But in the 50s, this nation that we don't think of in almost any other sporting context today was having a golden age. Most prominent of all was their national soccer squad, the so-called Golden Team. For six years, that team nearly went undefeated, and along the way, they won some incredibly famous matches. In 1953, they became the first international team outside of the UK and Ireland to beat England on home soil. That one was called the Match of the Century. Then they did the same thing to the Soviet Union three years later, ending their home unbeaten record. At the 1952 Olympics, they won the gold medal easily, and in the 1954 World Cup, they defeated international powerhouses West Germany, Brazil, and Uruguay to reach the final. 
There, in a stunning upset, they lost to the West Germans, a team they had beaten 8-3 earlier in the tournament by a score of 3-2. It was the only match they'd lose in six years, and the team had a huge impact on the sport, in particular for Gustav Sieb's development of the innovative 3-2-3-2 formation, which evolved into the 4-2-4, and his introduction of the concept of, quote, total football, where every player must have the ability to play every position. It wasn't just soccer either. The women's basketball team in Hungary finished second in the European Championships in 1950. The men's team won the European title in 1955. All through the decade, Hungarians completely dominated Olympic fencing. Agnes Kaledi, a gymnast, won 10 Olympic medals in just two games, and the team won three straight silvers. Laszlo Pop became the first Olympic boxer to win three straight gold medals. And in fact, at the 1952 Helsinki Games, Hungary was third on the medal table with 42 total medals, trailing only the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Hard to imagine that today, uh, but this was a real boom time in athletics for the Central European powerhouse, and it looked like things would only get better. It was also an interesting time politically, but in this case, I mean interesting as in the old, allegedly Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. In World War II, Hungary joined the Axis powers, and the historical record unfortunately indicates that they were enthusiastic participants. Right-wing nationalism had grown in the country throughout the 30s, just as it had in Germany, and Hungary saw the chance of this war to use the collective strength of their new allies to retake parts of other countries, like the Czechoslovak Republic, the Slovak Republic, and Romania, that they considered their own. As you might imagine, Hitler encouraged them every step of the way. In 1941, Hungary took part in the invasion of both Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union, and even the Germans thought their tactics were particularly brutal. Some of their soldiers were even accused of a concept called murder tourism. Well, clearly the war went against them. Uh, at the Battle of Stalingrad, the Hungarian army was essentially destroyed by the Soviets, with casualties rising as high as 100,000. And at a certain point, putting their finger to the wind and realizing they were basically screwed, the Hungarians decided they better start negotiating for peace with the Americans and the British. Problem was, the Nazis found out and responded by invading them in 1944. That didn't last long. The Soviets were pushing forward from the east, and by February 1945, Hungary had surrendered to them. In all, Hungarians lost about 900,000 people in the war, including somewhere between 450 and 600,000 Jews. And the end result was the exact same borders they'd had before the war and a looming communist giant to their east. Technically, right after the war, the country was a democracy, but it wasn't long before the Hungarian Communist Party took complete control. By 1949, Hungary had become the People's Republic of Hungary. And, you know, the results were predictable for an Eastern Bloc nation. There were massive purges, forced relocations, arrests and torture by the secret police, forced confessions, concentration camps, deportations, slave labor, and more. Uh, the leader of the Catholic Church in the country was arrested, and in the capital city of Budapest alone, 26,000 people were relocated in just one year. At the same time, the Soviet Union had not forgotten about Hungary's role in the war. Communists, though they may be now, 
The Soviet Union demanded reparations nonetheless, and the bill was the equivalent of about 300 million U.S. dollars. As you might imagine, that didn't help economic matters. The currency in Hungary depreciated, and a Soviet-style five-year plan instituted by the government failed spectacularly. Food had to be rationed, the standard of living went down, and the people were miserable. But Joseph Stalin died in 1953, Nikita Khrushchev denounced him and his followers in 1956, and reform was in the air. When Poland won some trade concessions with the Soviet Union after an uprising that summer, and Austria became a neutral country, Hungary started to think that, hey, maybe that can happen for us too. Plus, they were angry. When they finally forced the resignation of Matthias Rakosi, a Stalin disciple, from his position of general secretary, the possibilities must have seemed limitless. Students began attending forums, instituting previously illegal democratic unions, and basically snubbing their noses at the communists who were still in charge. By late October of 1956, revolution wasn't just possible, it looked inevitable. Meanwhile, that fall, the Hungarian water polo team was in the process of training for the Olympics, which would be held in December in Melbourne, Australia. So at this point, if you're like me, you've got a question. Why is water polo so big in Hungary? I mean, this is a landlocked country in Central Europe, and yes, they have some big rivers like the Danube, but there's no obvious explanation there. So the best we can do really is a partial explanation. Despite being landlocked, Hungary has long had a strong water culture. You know, that term <laughs> seems kind of weird, but the truth is Hungary boasts the largest lake in Central Europe, Lake Balaton. And in fact, there are pictures you can find online of water polo matches being played in that lake as early as 1903. The country also has a rich reserve of thermal waters with more than 1,300 mineral springs in the country uh, and has often been considered the spa capital of the world. So to go back to this word culture, there's a definite spa culture uh, to which I guess you can say that Hungarians have always been at home in water. Uh, and so water polo began in the UK in the 1870s. It was exported to Hungary around the turn of the century. And the fact is that the Hungarians took to it like, well, like a fish to water. Uh, this holds up in swimming, too, where Hungary is fourth all time on the Olympic medal table and also in canoeing, where they're third. And it turns out the people of this landlocked country are just really good in water within reason. Being landlocked has its price, and Hungary has not, for instance, excelled at sailing. Anyway, within a few years of receiving the sport from the UK, there was already a Hungarian national championship, and by 1912, they were competing in the Olympics. The first medal, as noted before, was a silver that came in 1928, the next gold in 1932, and then they were off to the races. They beat the Nazis in 1936 in Berlin, took another silver in 1948 after the war, and defeated Yugoslavia and others for the gold in 1952, meaning that heading into the Melbourne Olympics, they were the defending champions. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union had finished seventh in those 52 games, and in the documentary Freedom's Fury, the Russian Viktor Agiev would say of the Hungarians, quote, they were our idols. But the Soviet Union had an enormous amount of political control over Hungary now, so... They did what you might do, which is they actually sent their team to study Hungarian tactics and training, wrote everything down, and implemented it right down to the last detail. 
Uh, when the two teams met for a warm-up tournament that year in Moscow, shady refereeing gave the Soviet Union the win, and the two teams got in a fistfight in the locker room afterward. When they played in Hungary, the home fans turned their backs on the Russian team and shouted down and sang down their national anthem. So there was already bad blood between the teams, but the political situation in Hungary was about to make it much, much worse. Led at first by the students, an enormous demonstration was held in Budapest, the capital, on October 23rd, and a writer named Peter Veres read a manifesto to the crowd, which was then about 20,000 strong, demanding Hungarian independence and civil rights, among other things. The crowd chanted a band poem whose chorus was, This we swear, this we swear, that we will no longer be slaves. By 6 p.m. that night, the 23rd, the crowd had swelled to 200,000 people, and though it was still peaceful, it didn't take an expert to see where this was headed. After a leader of the Communist Party denounced them on TV and radio, the furious protesters destroyed a 30-foot bronze statue of Joseph Stalin. They moved on next to the radio station, which was guarded by the secret police, and before long, the police opened fire on them. Even then, the crowds wouldn't leave, and when the police called for military backup, many of the soldiers joined the protesters. Soon a riot began, and some of the revolutionaries, as they could now safely be called, began to seize guns uh, along the way. At that point, the Hungarian communist government wasn't very strong. In fact, it was a little bit in tatters. They only had one tactic left, and that was to beg the Soviet Union for help. By the 24th, the next day, Soviet tanks had advanced to the Hungarian parliament in the city, but some were captured by the newly armed revolutionaries who also captured the radio station and drove the armed police away from the communist newspaper building. The next day, the secret police dropped all pretense of being anything but an oppressive force and started shooting at the protesters from the rooftops. Many of the protesters, now armed, shot back. And by this point, the Soviets were still not fully engaged. So by then, Imran Nagy, who I may be mispronouncing, that's Imre Nagy, the chosen leader of the Hungarian Revolution, had become the de facto prime minister, but he was a man divided. He was still a communist and had been for most of his life, and some suspected that he had actually signed the order for the Soviets to come to the party's rescue. Initially, he urged the protesters to be peaceful. But by October 28th, he kind of, again, put his finger to the wind, saw which direction things were going, and announced his full-throated support for them, dissolved the secret police, and vowed to make the Soviet military withdraw. Fights raged on across the country for the next week. The military was divided and fought on both sides, but by October 30, Nagy's faction had taken control. He seemed to have appeased the Soviets, and for a week the fighting died down, although even in that period more than 200 communists were lynched and executed. Meanwhile, the water polo team were training just outside Budapest, close enough to hear the gunfire as the revolutionaries battled the police. On October 30, Nagy told them to go to Australia as planned, where they would represent the new free nation of Hungary. So they began their journey on November 1st, and Nagy went further than he ever had before on that day, withdrawing Hungary from the Warsaw Pact. And that was the thing that the Eastern Bloc nations had signed that basically made them subservient to the Soviet Union. And he declared Hungary was a neutral nation, just like Austria. 
All right, so the trip to Melbourne for the water polo team and for all the athletes would take three weeks. And in that time, none of them would get any updates about what was happening in their home country. As far as they knew, Hungary had declared and won its independence, and the Soviets were letting it happen. But as they headed to the opposite side of the globe, a tragedy was unfolding in Hungary. The big question for Hungary now, and when you think about it, really the only question was what would the Soviet Union do? They had toppled their own government, but this was the last problem remaining. And as mentioned before, Nikita Khrushchev, first secretary of the Communist Party, i.e. the leader of the entire Soviet Union, had denounced Stalinism in his, quote, secret speech earlier that year. I'm not going to go into that too deeply, but it was actually a pretty great act of political courage following Stalin's long reign of terror, and it's worth studying more if you're interested in Soviet history. But so in theory, at least, Khrushchev would maybe support the reforms of the Hungarian Revolution. And there was also the Suez Canal crisis to consider. That was happening at the exact same time. This was where Israel, uh, colluding with France and the UK, had invaded Egypt, hoping to control the canal. And already it was clear to Khrushchev and in everybody else's words that it was going to be basically a huge mess. And in fact, Khrushchev was against intervening in Hungary at the start. On October 31st, the Soviets even released a document agreeing to negotiate with the new Hungarian government. But then came an attack on the Working People's Party headquarters in Budapest, and the footage from it was effectively used as a propaganda tool. On October 31st, Khrushchev switched gears entirely, and he was also probably motivated by Nagy's declaration of neutrality, a fear of looking weak to other communist nations, and the potential loss of the buffer states like Hungary that protected the Soviet Union from direct Western attacks. So, after this uh, semi-auspicious beginning, by November 1st, the decision was made, and the decision was for an all-out attack. The Soviets invited a Hungarian delegation to negotiate peace on the th November 3rd, then arrested them all and moved on Budapest. Operation Whirlwind, as it was called, was not a fair fight. With air power, artillery, tanks, and soldiers, the Soviets routed the Hungarians. Sporadic fighting lasted technically until about November 11th, but it was basically over by November 5th. In all, 2,500 Hungarians were killed, 20,000 wounded, and most of those were under 30 years old. 200,000 refugees left the country, and 22,000 more were arrested. Nagy, the new prime minister, fled to Yugoslavia, but he was captured, tried, and two years later he was executed. The Soviets installed their puppet dictator, Janos Kadar, and he controlled the country for 22 years. The dream of Hungarian independence was dead. As I mentioned, while all of this was going on, the Hungarian Olympic delegation was on their way to Australia. It was a long trip. It took about three weeks then, and they didn't arrive until November 20th. You can imagine their shock then when they reached Melbourne and finally heard the news. It was one of the water polo players, Miklos Martin, the only one who spoke English, who read everyone else the news from an Australian paper. 
Three countries, Spain, Switzerland, and the Netherlands, boycotted as a result of the invasion, while Egypt, Lebanon, and Iraq boycotted because of the Suez Crisis. In the Olympic Village, the flag of communist Hungary flew, but athletes tore it down and raised the flag of free Hungary, already a bygone nation except in their hearts, in its place. But for Hungary, the show would go on in Melbourne, and it became more important than ever for the water polo team to win the gold medal. In the group stages, they had absolutely no trouble, thanks in part to a new defensive system pioneered by Kalman Markovitz known as zonal marking. Essentially, as the name implies, this was a zone defense, and the other teams had no idea how to counter it. In their first two matches, they throttled Great Britain, the country that had given them the sport, 6-1, and routed the Americans 6-2. In the next round, they shut out Italy 4-0 and then did the same to Germany. At that point in the tournament, Hungary was undefeated at four wins and zero losses and had allowed just three goals. Yugoslavia had also gone undefeated through three matches, but a draw with Germany put them one point behind the Hungarians, and the Soviets, who had lost to Yugoslavia in the first round, were trailing by two. So, as fate would have it, that set up a match between, yes, Hungary and the Soviet Union. This was not, as some sources indicate, a semifinal match. In fact, it was just part of the round robin. There were no semifinals or finals then, but it happened to be the second to last match for both teams, and it was almost a certainty that the team who won would win at least the silver medal. So in some ways, it was just like a semifinal. Now, it's impossible to imagine a scenario where there was more tension between two teams. These guys didn't like each other in the first place, and now there was the specter of a failed revolution, an invasion, and an occupation hanging over them. It's little wonder that the match played on December 6, 1956, became the most infamous in the entire history of the sport. As the UP report after the game noted, quote, it was a pro-Hungarian crowd from the moment the two teams were introduced. In fact, many of the 5,500 fans who packed the swimming and diving stadium in Melbourne were expats from Hungary, and they wanted the victory badly. So did the players. Irvin Zador, one of Hungary's players, later said, the Hungarians there were so charged and there was such a deep hostility for all the things they did to our country since 1945 that all these people in Australia just went absolutely berserk. They began to shoot us, those bastards, said Istvan Hevesi. The fire inside us was beating so strongly. God help us, we'll beat them for sure. Now, the Hungarian players weren't planning on fighting necessarily, but they did want to distract the Russians and make them angry. So they launched a plan to taunt them. Zador outlined this plan. He said, we were yelling at them, you dirty bastards, you come over and bomb our country. They were calling us traitors. There was fighting above the water and fighting beneath the water. Well, the strategy worked. According to the UP, the game was only one minute old when Russia's Peter, oh, this name I'm not going to get right, Mikvenirads put a hammer lock on a Hungarian and was sent to the penalty box as the crowd showered him with catcalls, end quote. It might be appropriate to take a minute here to consider the perspective of the Soviet players. Keep in mind, these were athletes, not politicians or generals. When they thought of Hungary at all, they probably thought of them as a water polo powerhouse to be admired. They had not ordered the invasion of the country, and who knows if they even supported it. And now suddenly, here they were in Australia, surrounded by the absolute fury of thousands of Hungarian expats, and facing a team that was already the best in the world, and now was coming at them with barely concealed rage. It must have been an incredibly uncomfortable situation, if not overwhelming. 
And it's hardly surprising that when the Hungarians provoked them, they reacted with anger. The first goal was scored by Hungary's Deso Jumadi, who hit a Russian in the chin as he wound up in shot. The second came at the 13-minute mark from Georgi Karpati, and that put Hungary up 2-0 at the half. And the fact that the Hungarians held the lead didn't help matters because it only made the Soviets more confused and more desperate. They didn't want to be humiliated after being verbally attacked, but that's exactly what was happening, and they had absolutely no answer for Hungary's zonal marking strategy. There had been kicking and punching throughout the entire match from both sides, and when the second half started, Boris Markarov of the Russians hit Anton Bovary in the eye. A massive fight threatened to break out then, but the referees were just able to contain it. Just. That punch gave the Hungarians a power play, and Zador scored the third goal, which basically put the match out of reach, and then he scored a fourth. As time wound down with the score 4-0, it seemed for a moment that despite the anger, at least the match would end without any outrageous incident. Then, with just two minutes left, Zador was told to guard Valentin Prokopov, who is probably the Soviets' best player. Here was Zandor's response, as related later. I said, no problem, I can handle him. I'll tell him he's a loser, and his mother's a loser, and everything else. I'll say the game's over, and you're just a sorry-ass loser, and that's it. <laughs> well, you can guess how that went. Soon after delivering his message to Prokopov, a whistle blew, and Zadora turned to the referee to ask what it was about. The minute he turned away, Prokopov wound up and delivered a massive punch to Zadora's face. Newspaper accounts at the time called it a headbutt, yet Zador and everyone else at the match seemed to agree that it was a punch. I turned back, Zador said, and with a straight arm, he just smacked me in the face. He tried to punch me out. I saw about 4,000 stars, and I reached my face and I felt warm blood pouring down, and I instantly said, oh my god, I won't be able to play the next game. A bleeding gash on his face forced Zador to leave the pool, where an infamous photo was taken of him that led to the nickname the Blood in the Water match, which, by the way, came with rumors that the water itself turned red. Not true. The crowd had not heard what Zador said to Prokopov, and if they had, they probably wouldn't have cared. All they saw was more Soviet aggression against their guy, and their rage erupted. They leapt the barriers, and, to quote the UP, furious Hungarians lined the pool's edge, shaking their fists at the Russians gathered in a protective nod at one end. The Russians, clearly frightened, probably thought they were about to be attacked and possibly killed. Two things saved them. First, they were in a pool. Second, police were on hand to rush to the poolside and stop the mob from any violent action. Wisely, the Swedish referee blew the final whistle and a PA announcer conveyed the message that the match had ended. The Russians were escorted out of the pool as fans launched whatever they could at them and shouted abuse. The blood in the water match was over. The Hungarians had won for nothing. The next day, the Soviets beat Germany to secure the bronze medal, and Hungary won a tense 2 to 1 match against Yugoslavia to take the gold. The aftermath of the events of the Hungarian uprising were complicated. On one hand, the Soviet action immediately halted any mass collapse of the Eastern Bloc. On the other, the violence of their response took the romance out of communism and the Soviet Union itself in many Western European nations, effectively ending any chance of a Marxist ideology taking root in the post-war period. 
The U.S. propagandized against the Soviet Union, but refused to enter a conflict, fearing an escalation into nuclear warfare. Still, it was clear that Khrushchev had failed to learn the lesson of Suez, just as the Soviet Union would fail to learn the lesson of America's involvement in Vietnam when it engaged in its disastrous Afghanistan war. For Hungary, of course, it was a tragedy. Paul Henri Charles Spock, the Secretary General of NATO, called the revolution, quote, the collective suicide of a whole people. And he wasn't entirely wrong. At the Olympics, rumors began to spread that the Hungarian athletes were planning to defect en masse. Of the 83 athletes who made the trip to Melbourne, only 38 returned to Hungary. You can imagine the effect that this had on Hungarian sports. They were never the same, and the golden age was effectively over. One of those who defected to America was Irvin Zador, the hero of the win against the Soviets and the man whose blood made the match iconic. Almost 60 years later, here's what he had to say to Sports Illustrated. Instead of going back a hero, making 3,000 forints a month, having a chance to go to the next three Olympics, I gave all that up to be a nobody with no marketable skills who didn't speak the language. It wasn't an easy decision, but I hated the system and the Hungarian communists. I just couldn't see myself going back, especially with the Russians really ticked off. But whatever's happened the last 55 years, there hasn't been a moment I've regretted it. Zador died at age 77 after a career that included running restaurants and hotels, working as a masseuse, teaching dance, running a pistol range, and installing air conditioners. His daughter Christine scored the sudden death goal in overtime that gave the USC water polo team an NCAA title. But maybe the most interesting bit of trivia happened just after Zador came to America when he moved to San Francisco and took a job as a lifeguard at the Bay Area Club. Soon, some of the parents learned he had been an Olympian, and they asked if he'd teach their kids to swim. He agreed. As it turned out, one of those kids showed a lot of ability. His name was Mark Spitz. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening to Apocalypse Sports Radio. I hope you enjoyed that story of the blood in the water match from the 1956 Olympics. Uh, if you like this, you will probably like a lot of the content at apocalypsesports.net. I write there three times a week, and it tends to um, take a similar angle where we're looking at some little bit of sports history or some little fact or nugget or something that interests me and kind of teasing that out into a longer post, much like I'm doing here with the podcast. Uh, there are two podcasts each week. One is like this. The other is a long-form interview with somebody in the sports or sports media world. Uh, I think, as I mentioned earlier, Joe Poznanski will be my guest in the Thursday podcast. Uh, so that was already recorded, actually, and it was a lot of fun, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, if you like this kind of material, you can support me at patreon.com slash apocalypseports, where for $3 a month, you can say thanks, basically. Uh, and if the time comes where we get enough Patreons or patrons or whatever they're called, uh, we will start doing some exclusive content and things like that. So again, thank you very much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day and I will see you tomorrow at Apocalypse Sports. Apocalypse Sports.